Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. Chirpy Bird helps clinicians navigate the transition to value-based care. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we are geeking out with Janine Morales, Director of Clinical Knowledge Management at Intervention Insights. Janine's latest work involves ensuring the accuracy of a platform that provides real-time, evidence-supported technology to help oncologists, practices, and labs make the most appropriate decisions for cancer patients. So let's get started. I am currently, um, my title is Clinical Knowledge Manager at uh, a company called Intervention Insights. And within the larger health IT ecosystem, if you will, we are focused on, we are are an oncology-focused company. Um, And we use a technology platform to assist physicians and other stakeholders in, in healthcare to um, support the best care of oncology patients through a data-driven approach. And I'll certainly um, delve into that in in more detail in a minute. But I actually didn't um, start out my career in knowledge management or certainly not trained in technology per se. Um, I I trained as a basic scientist. So I have my PhD in pharmacology. And most of my training was, was basic research using the tools of biochemistry and biology to understand, you know, how cells communicate, how they signal, how they take cues from their environment and um, initiate changes in that cell that lead to behaviors like growth or, or migration or differentiation. And when I was getting my degree, um, it, it, we, were, we were starting to see a real translation of a lot of the basic research happening out there in, in biology and in cancer basic research. And we we're seeing those findings Um, being translated to new approaches to care, um, to new therapies, new diagnostics. Um, All of that was really starting to take off and and come to fruition in some of the first, um, some of the first what we call targeted therapies. And I found that I was really fascinated by this translational 
um, aspect of the field. And I, I started to move away from the um, more, to me, was minutia of, of working on something very, very focused in a laboratory and, and started to become really interested in the, just the broader um, trends that were happening in the fields of, um, you know, healthcare and how technology, um, be it uh, diagnostic technologies or sequencing technologies, were changing that healthcare and how people were thinking about it and how that information was being disseminated. And so my first kind of foray out of the laboratory and into information technology, if you will, was with in one of the one of the first websites, to be honest, out there, and it was called bio.com. Um, and that that um, company or website is no longer in, in, in existence. But at the time, the goal was to kind of aggregate a lot of the trends in, in biotechnology and use that website as a platform to to disseminate that information and and facilitate conversations and uh, uh, on the trends that were that were happening in that space. And that really started me on my kind of departure from the basic scientist uh, realm into. The, the larger field of, you know, information management. And I won't go into all the in-between steps, but I eventually ended up in the, the oncology field. And so to circle back to what we then are, are currently doing then at Intervention Insights, the company where I'm working, as I said, we're, we're an oncology-focused company. And more specifically, we are in the subpart of oncology, if you will, that's about the practice of precision medicine in oncology. And so what do I mean by precision medicine? I think that, you know, some people argue that, well, precision medicine is something that physicians have always practiced. They've always, you know, looked at a patient and their characteristics and, and very precisely determined a course of treatment for them or, or a series of actions that will hopefully lead to better outcomes for that patient. But what the, the current iteration of that term is really around using molecular information so some of these basic findings that I was talking about that I was, you know, we were seeing coming out of basic research, how we're now using some of that basic molecular information about a patient's tumor to determine the best treatments to um, and select precise therapies for them. So we can take a patient's tumor, send that off for molecular analysis, be it sequencing of their genes or looking at the, their gene products and how those might differ from, from a normal cell, and then determine based on those results what therapies um, might those patients be likely to respond to or maybe have side effects from or maybe not respond to at all. So that is that is the the area where intervention insights is focused right now, and what we have developed is um, a technology platform that's used by physicians and other stakeholders such as laboratories and payers that's designed to support the best care of oncology patients. And at the point of care, we provide decision support to facilitate and streamline the practice of precision medicine. So how do we get the right drug to the right patient with the ultimate goal of improving those patient outcomes? and hopefully, ultimately, minimizing harmful side effects. So let me ask you a question. The, the platform you all are working on, what's it called? And then, you know, in, in healthcare, period, there is information changing literally every day. It's a double-edged sword. It's one of the things I love most about being in healthcare. But on oncology, especially for cancer patients, how do you even keep the platform up to date to make the alignments of the drugs, treatments, interventions, or even the, the research coming out about, you know, maybe tumors or certain cancers, period, 
to, to keep that all aligned to make sure you guys are staying on the cutting edge of that? Well, actually, you, this is, that's a perfect setup for <laughs> why our company exists, in fact, because um, I think that just to take one, one brief step backwards, like I said earlier, while medicine has always been, and what one would argue has always been, there's always been a data-driven approach to making those decisions, I think the sheer volume of information and data that can now be brought to bear on any individual patient case has really started to outpace the ability of physicians to, you know, manage that in the ways that maybe they they're used to, which is, you know, taking CME courses or referring to the guidelines that are written documents that are really intended to address the broader population of patients, and of course break that down to some degree. But what we're finding now is there's so much information about individual patients that one can gather. Um, in some cases, that is as relevant to care, and others it is not. That that's really beyond the the capacity of humans to kind of manage just from a memorization or referring to documents uh, using using that kind of process. So. And in fact, the, the problem that you just stated is what drove Intervention Insights initially into existence in that we felt that there was a need for a really robust platform and process to manage all this information, to be continuously surveilling all the available literature that's coming out on these molecular changes and how they're affecting responses to therapy in patients to bring that into our system, to aggregate and compare and align like studies, so studies that, that share the characteristics of maybe a, a single patient uh, or what one individual patient might want to see at, at the point of care, and then use that knowledge base as a basis to then create tools and services that where others can tap into that knowledge and uh, use it to make a decision about a patient that maybe is relatively relatively rare. Like maybe someone, uh, physicians are seeing patients that have mutations that maybe they've, they haven't treated a patient with that before. And we're trying to bring that information about these smaller and smaller segments of the population, bring those to those physicians more quickly rather than have them, you know, search through a variety of abstracts or papers to try to find relevant information for that patient. So, you know, our approach, and we, we started this maybe five years ago, the foundation of our services is this robust precision medicine knowledge system that we built. So I lead a team of experienced uh, molecular biology scientists, and we also have a fantastic team of clinician consultants that we tap into. And when we first started to tackle this knowledge base, we came up with a comprehensive curation process, kind of, you know, leaving technology aside for now, but a process of what, what did we want to surveil? What were the data elements that we wanted to capture? And then we worked with our engineers to build a custom application to help us manage and ultimately kind of object, objectively evaluate the clinical data it, that's, that's available. And what we currently do now is a bit of a amalgamation of manual hard work and technology to help us get through all of the, the data that's out there. Where, how we use technology, we use that to kind of bring important papers to us either because it's a, a known source of, you know, relevant information. There's a set of journals that we are looking at almost daily, um, looking at those titles, but using a manual process to say, well, we use, excuse me, we use, you know, technology and keywords to kind of triage 
the review of all the available data, but we really rely on humans to read those titles, read those abstracts, and quickly make a determination as to whether it's relevant for our system or not. And that we are, we over the course of a year review, you know, thousands of primary research papers and thousands of abstracts from um, conferences that, uh, you know, pertain to precision medicine and, and oncology more, more broadly. And then, so we have a team that handles that surveillance aspect. They then triage that information, pick out the stuff that is relevant for, for our purposes. And then we hand that off to, you know, a series of experts in, in the different disease domains, and they abstract the, the relevant data. So, uh, like I said in the beginning, when we developed this process, we said, you know, what kinds of data would a physician want to have at their fingertips when they're making a, a decision about a precision medicine or a, what we call a targeted therapy, a therapy that targets a particular molecular alteration? And so we built that, we built a system to capture that. And our scientists have gotten very uh, skilled, uh, adept at, you know, reading through these and picking out the key details that we want to abstract and bring into our system that we ultimately use to evaluate the strength of an entire body of evidence. So let's say a patient comes in with a particular mutation, our system would have an entire collection of evidence that pertains to that mutation in that patient's disease type. What we do is we analyze that body of data. We've developed an evidence framework. So we assign kind of a strength of an evidence level that indicates the strength of that body of evidence. And we're, we're very strict about how we assign that. And we have a, a matrix that we plug our data variables into to ultimately come up with that evidence level assignment. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. It sounds like there is so much that's going into this thoughtful approach of how you're looking at all of the data and evidence that is out there. Can you speak to any sort of patient success stories or patients that this approach has made a real impact in their life and potentially like helped them get to a diagnosis sooner or get to the right diagnosis or whatever the, the outcome is? Absolutely. I think it's actually a, a really important question is who does this, who is this currently applying to precision medicine? And to be perfectly honest, and I think it's important to be honest in the field and not to hype it too much, is that not everyone is is benefiting from a precision medicine approach. But there are some um, diseases or cancer types where we, we are really seeing a real impact on patient care and patient outcomes. One of those is lung cancer. So if we look at the group of patients who have what's called lung adenocarcinoma, which is one of the more, most common forms of lung cancer, we now know a lot about the molecular basis of that disease and certain what are called drivers of that disease. And over the last couple of decades, the pharmaceutical companies, investors in this field have developed agents that are able to target and inhibit these specific mutations and have incredible response rates in lung cancer patients, unlike those we've ever seen in, in patients who are treated in the broader populations that are treated with chemotherapy. So let's say, I'll give you an example. In lung cancer, we can break it down into, currently there are, it, it depends on who you ask, but if it were you know, me and what would I want to have tested, there are around 10 or 12 markers, if you will, that, that define different populations of lung cancer patients. And if a patient has one of these alterations, I'll name one of them, the EGFR, 
that patient has a pretty good chance of responding to an inhibitor of that gene product. And the response rates, there's another one called ALK, um, there's another one called MET. And if you don't have these alterations, there's no reason you should be getting these drugs because the response rates are really quite minimal. And if you do have these alterations, the response rates are approach 40, 50, 60%. And now currently, much of this is being applied to late stage patients. So these are patients who have um, metastatic disease, which is often in most cases not a, a curable setting, but we are seeing that we're extending the lives of these patients. Um, and this has been going on for some time that we're seeing real um, improvements in both uh, survival and in quality of life because these are agents that are very specifically targeted to a, a molecular entity. And so what we see is, that in case, like I just described in lung, we see this happening in melanoma, in colorectal cancer, and some diseases have proven more intractable. And uh, in those cases, you know, precision medicine is still in that very early research phase, if you will. And in others, it's standard of care. And, and patients are now treated with these agents, you know, upfront in the, in the first line. I think that's really important because when I think about the impact of what you just described, we know that lung cancer is by far the leading cause of cancer death, more than colon, breast, and prostate combined, right? So mm -hmm. when we're talking about that, or even you said older age, but the average age of diagnosis is 70 in lung cancer, the number of people that you have an opportunity to impact by identifying the markers to align them with the appropriate drug is remarkable because 70 in this day and age is really not that old. And right. so when you talk about the ability to find the right drug with the right receptors, because that's how science works. Lung cancer is not just lung cancer. The scientists, the researchers, the folks like you behind that get this. The fact that you have this sophisticated platform that can make that alignment is really something special. Right. Well, I think I appreciate that. We, we in fact, find that, one, the field is absolutely fascinating. It is very encouraging. There are, as you alluded to earlier, it's a very dynamic space and data is emerging with, you know, regularity. I mean, on an almost a daily basis, we're finding new data sets that need to be updated and improved. And, and I think that our approach is intended to really be very accurate about and, uh, let's say, transparent about the way that precision medicine is applied. Because as I said, there are patients for whom we have very good data that a precision medicine approach is going to be a benefit to them. It's without a doubt that if they have a particular alteration, they should be getting and that treatment should be made available to them. And yet, as I mentioned, we have these different evidence levels, right? There are so many different molecular alterations that have been measured, some of which are actionable, some of which are not, and some are kind of that in that in-between stage where the data is emerging, but there's some uncertainty in that population still. And we, um, as a company, feel like, you know, our point of view, of course, is that we would love everyone to have a precision medicine approach, but I think that in the best interest of all the stakeholders, the physician, the patient, um, the payers who are, who are paying for these, that everyone should have a shared data set with which to understand where are we on that continuum of bringing, you know, agents and those agents that are associated with molecular changes from the preclinical stage to the early clinical to the late clinical. And that's 
not only are we attempting, as, as you pointed out, to gather all this information and keep it at the fingertips, but also to put it into perspective and to make sure that I think everyone is aware of, someone wrote a, an article within the last year, maybe it was, you know, called the, the Paradox of Precision Medicine. And that is, as we start to fragment the population into smaller and smaller cohorts, you by definition have less and less data to support any given intervention in that group of patients. I mean, that's just biology, right? And that's the way things are going. But I think that what comes with that is that there's some inherent uncertainty in that. And so what we're trying to really do is be transparent about how much data is there really available for, for you as a patient. Do you want to be making your decision based on this molecular alteration? Does it really trump the standard of care, which might be chemotherapy in your case? And so we're, we're watching that, we're tracking that, and um, making sure that precision medicine is applied at the right time and in the appropriate way. Well, I was going to actually ask about the patients, because you're mentioning all this data that they have and it's available to them, but on this, on this level of looking at precision medicine, are the patients actually involved or is this something that it's really for you know, the labs or oncologists or even the payers, are they part of making that decision for the patient or how involved is the patient in signing up for precision medicine approaches to their care? That's an excellent question. I think that that probably varies in the field right now. And I would say that while precision medicine in many cases is being used and applied and patients are being educated on their options, we know that there are still cases where that's not happening. So even in lung cancer, where we know it's been some years now where we're applying a precision medicine approach, we know and anecdotally that there are some physicians that, that aren't using that approach or aren't, aren't informing their patients that that's an option for them. So I think that there are no standards around that. Currently, certainly in an ideal world, you bring a patient into that in a shared decision-making process, right? And I think that one of the things that we're not currently doing, but we certainly would love to be able to migrate to that as a company, is to really bring, uh, well, we certainly hope that the patient is always in the conversation, but that we tailor our content to the patient as well, so that they understand some of the, you know, some of the basics and some of the considerations that go into having this testing done and then making a decision based on that test. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. I guess there, I think that certainly um, patients should be involved. Uh, and I think that it's really important that as a field, we think about how we simplify and make it consumable by a layperson or, or, you know, a patient that we, you know, kind of take the science and make it something that's really understandable for a patient that's really ultimately going to be greatly impacted by a lot of these new developments. Yeah, I think that your your company has an opportunity to play a key role in translating that because, I mean, genetic mutation education, I mean, wow, that's just a whole other level of healthcare literacy with patients to be understood, but also an important one when we're talking about the kind of diagnoses that you all deal with. So I think you bring up yes, our yes. next question, Janine, that is, if you could 
snap your fingers and solve one problem in a very magical world of healthcare and health IT, what would it be and why? Well, oh gosh, it's hard to pick one. <laughs> you know, I'll say that kind of broadly, I think that what one sees in the field of patient care, at least the application of IT at the physician level, is that there's a lot of data collection, there's a lot of data entry, and we're not seeing a lot of that effort really translate to greater efficiency in care. Now, that's stating the problem, and I don't know, I'm not stating a solution yet because I think the solution is perhaps multifactorial. But I think that if I were to pick, you know, even a problem and, and hone it a little bit more, I think that if we could think about prior authorization of some of these therapies that we've been talking about, it seems that currently, even though we're asking physicians to enter very specific data about their patient, we have very specific molecular data available. There are still all these inefficiencies and hurdles that prevent patients from getting access to the right treatments in a timely way. And I think that that leads to, you know, obviously delayed care delivery. And part of that is that, you know, there aren't easy ways to share some of this information between the various stakeholders. So even though a physician is putting in very specific information that on face value qualify a patient for an agent, they're still getting on the phone and spending time talking with a payer and I won't say fighting, but it is, I think, in the minds of many physicians and more a somewhat adversarial relationship where you're on the phone and making an argument for your patient, taking time out of your day, creating in the, you know, the costs of this prior authorization process have been quantified and they're, and they're significant. So I think if we can use technology to expedite some of the things that are kind of straight down the fairway, right? Here's a patient that clearly meets the, the guidelines, the, the indication for an agent. Why are doctors on the phone <laughs> when, you know, so that data is in there, but it's not being used. And that could be partly a the technology problem, um, partly a process. I think that payers are somewhat wedded to prior authorization and someone has to come along with a better way to um, help them manage that. Certainly that's one way they, they manage costs currently. But I guess that maybe I'm not pointing at, a sol at the solution precisely, but an area where I think technology can play a role is in that process of getting, you know, where you're taking information about the patient and quickly acting on it. Is that, is that, a, is that, does that apply, do you think, that, that answer? Is yes, that? absolutely. No. That, that's great. I know, it definitely does. You know, I had a molecular diagnostic done a little over a year ago. I just got a bill for it. The prior auth, the doctor very much felt it met, you know, the clinical criterion and specifications based on everything he knew. But the amount of time he spent on the phone at the office, his nurse did waiting on hold to put him on phone for a peer-to-peer -peer review, the uh, letters of medical necessities, LMNs as they're called, um, and everything that happened just to end up holding a $3,400 bill when all was said and done, not only is frustrating for me as a patient watching this whole thing be navigated and the anxiety of dealing with such a high bill, but on the front end, if you went back to their site and I went back to the commercial payer's site, we had checked all the boxes. And so, uh, yeah, this it, the insanity right. or thinking that somebody's even waiting to have that done when it's simply the not the right thing to do for the patient is wildly unfortunate. So I think it's a lofty but necessary wish.
Right. <laughs> Lofty, probably. But hopefully, I think that, you know, there's more and more coming out about kind of the burdens that this prior authorization is has on, on the healthcare system as a whole, both from the physician burnout and the costs associated with that prior authorization process. And, you know, both costs from the payers on the payer side, that administrative burden of that, and definitely from the physicians. And then most frustratingly, for resulting in, in delays in care. So I think that, you know, at some point payers, if they continue to require PAs, those should be, you know, we really need to improve, simplify the process and standardize the methods for requesting and granting those prior authorizations that hopefully, you know, taps into to the data that's at that one fingertips. And not everything should require a peer-to-peer telephone call, for sure. Janine, we are working on building a reading list for our podcast listeners so that folks can essentially fast track their learning. Are there any books that you can think of uh, personally or professionally, fiction, nonfiction, could be a blog, and it's okay if you listen to books instead of read them, but is there anything that shows up for you that you would be interested in sharing and adding to our reading list? Sure. So when it comes to books, because I spend so much of my time looking at journals and very detailed clinical literature, I spend most of the books I read are, are fiction <laughs> or uh, some nonfiction. I recently read the book Educated, which I'm certainly not, I, I'm one amongst many. Uh, I thought that was a, a fabulous book about the perspective that, that education brings to one's life and certainly a, an amazing journey that, that that woman went through to get to where she is today. So I certainly recommend that as a, at least as a something outside of the scope of, of what we've been talking about today. But in terms of the field that I'm in, I guess, you know, if I were to say, where should one look to learn more about this? I'm not sure that, that books currently are really, as we've been talking about, this is such a, a rapidly evolving field books tend to be probably a little behind the times by the time they're published. What I tend to do, and that helps me to take a step back and step away from the details, is I tend to look at some of the major, major journals and a lot of the commentaries or editorials that are written in those. So I find myself routinely reading the editorials in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, either their Clinical Cancer Informatics Journal or some of the more esteemed journals like Nature, that I find that these really help me to, to look at the, what's happening in precision medicine from a higher level. Either they're giving me a perspective on the patient experience or the physician experience and some of the, the changes that haven't quite made it to the clinic, but that we're approaching. I really like the, the addition of the Nature magazine. I would not have guessed that that would have been one of them, but I guess thinking about you know the bigger picture, that, that does. That's, that's a good addition. Yeah. I mean, so, we always find that things like Nature, Science, like I said, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, that you have real thought leaders that are putting some of these new developments into perspective. And then recently, I found myself consumed with, there was a, in late 2018, they had a palliative and supportive care symposium in oncology. And I'm just reading through all of that and how technology can, uh, either through mobile health applications that monitor patient symptoms, um, and how these can really improve the patient experience and improve outcomes. I think that there are so many sources of inspiration out there in the journals that I think would, for the most part, there's some technical jargon to get through, but I think they can provide sources of information for people who want to make an impact 
in healthcare using IT solutions. So Janine, also, in addition to reading, I know that you and your organization also have a podcast so that if people want to hear more about precision medicine, they can. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the Precision Medicine podcast, which is sponsored by Trapello, the platform I've been speaking about today, is, is an example of our commitment to accelerate personalized healthcare at the point of care, and especially for cancer patients, as we've been discussing. And so we launched that podcast late last year, and we already have featured a variety of experts in the field. And, and I think that what I've been trying to emphasize during our discussion today is that we would like to bring multiple stakeholders together to share a knowledge base, share a data set, share solutions to support the appropriate use of precision medicine. And so we've interviewed genomicists and educators and pathologists and diagnostics experts because we think that hearing all these different perspectives is ultimately going to help us build better solutions to the problems that are out there. And so I think our hope is that this informal and efficient platform will enable more thought leaders to kind of just step away from their work and participate in the, the broader conversation and help us use precision medicine more effectively. That's wonderful. Well, I think that brings us to our last question, which is if folks wanted to find you and more about you or your company, where, where would they look? Finding me specifically, probably the best way is through LinkedIn, and I'm in there as Janine Morales uh, as a, an employee of Intervention Insights. I think, as I mentioned, the podcast, you can tune in and subscribe at the precisionmedicinepodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello. Um, and the company is also on LinkedIn at Intervention in, at, under Intervention Insights as a company. So. Yeah, those are the ways that you can get in touch with us. And if anyone has a suggestion for someone who would make a great guest for the Precision Medicine Podcast or they'd like to hear from, they can do that as well at the precisionmedicinepodcast.com. Well, That's thank fantastic. you so much for sharing with us about what you guys are doing and how precision medicine is playing a role in people's lives and sharing some of the insights, no pun intended, uh, that you did today. No problem. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Hey, Janine, can I ask you an aside question? So in the event of a rare disease or rare cancer where maybe no information exists um, or a mutation is not identified or you're dealing with something that's, you know, referred to you guys uh, for testing, what do you do anything to align patients with clinical trials where maybe, you know, there isn't a drug, there isn't an intervention, but something may, you know, exist? Yes, absolutely. That's That's a great question. So. I think that so what what happens when patients have their um, have their tumor profiled or have some of this molecular information at hand is as I was mentioning earlier you, there's kind of this continuum of actionability if you will and and some of those things are are on the far end that are highly supported and for which there's an approved drug and there are others for which there may not be an approved drug but there may be an existing clinical trial. Uh, with an investigational agent that may or may not have existing data. Um, and so that is absolutely a large part of what we do is if the information um, about that patient's tumor doesn't lead directly to, you know, a, an approved therapy, 
are there trials that that patient would be appropriate for? And I think that's a huge part of precision medicine right now because there is so much in development. And I think there are so many patients who are eligible and really should consider one of these trials. We know that trial accrual is really a difficult, laborious process, and a very small percentage of patients ultimately go on a trial. And our goal is to hopefully facilitate that. And I know that's not only ours, but but many others, that if we take the molecular information, look at that and say, hey, based on this mutation, you're really eligible for this drug that targets you know, a cancer that looks like yours, we definitely take steps to try to to bring that that information to the point of care. So that's all included in a report that Intervention Insights would generate. That's really cool. So very, very important, I, very important piece of the puzzle that, yeah, we didn't discuss earlier. Yep. No, it is. And, you know, not in, an, in oncology, but in a different space. My son had a rare disease. And, you know, you're talking about the small subsets of information that are out there. But I will take that small subset of detailed information when there are no answers, no known etiology for a problem and no direction to go in and no trials on the face of this planet that are available. And I will run with it. And when we talk about even the, the play now and citizen science and these other things, you know, I thought working in healthcare that I was equipped to deal with the challenges that were thrown at us. And I could not have been more wrong. Um, Absolutely right. dead wrong. So I, what you all are doing to align oncology patients, you know, it, it really has some personal resonance with me. But as I'm thinking about that, or even the fact that you say, if there's not an option, that there are trials and these other things, sometimes people are just clinging to hope and what's next. And to know that at least you're offering that in a report that's getting back to the patient, the family, the people that are sitting on the other side of this transaction, not a business transaction, but a real change in their life, especially with cancer, is just really, that, that makes me feel really good to know that y'all are doing that and playing in that space as well to help the cling to that umbilicus of hope, which is what that person on the other side is hoping is going to come back in your report, quite honestly. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think clinical trials and making patients aware of that is is such a key part of moving this field forward as well, not only for that individual patient, but just for the, the continuous evolution of the information that we're gathering. And thank goodness for patients who are, are willing to put themselves on these trials. And I think what they're doing for, you know, making a good decision for themselves and certainly contributing to the greater good of the precision field and, and future patients and what they'll have available to them. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really important point. And I and as a team, when we, you know, we always try to remind ourselves when we're summarizing these reports or the information, it's we 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 step back and this is for a person, this is for an individual making a decision about about their lives and how let's make sure that you know we're so careful about how we parse our words and and choose our, our words carefully that so that we're not either pushing someone to the wrong thing, misleading them or or denying them something that might be of benefit to them. So really, really important point. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing with us. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate the ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle HitLikeAGirlPod. Thanks again. See you soon.
Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more about Chirpy Bird at www.chirpybirdllc.com.